getting up at 5 a.m. to, as coach said, that run a 5.30 mile or else you don't play, does not go in line with my mentality that I need to party or be at the bars because that's what my college life is supposed to be. So they all quit. Within six months, they're all gone. But you know what? Their life's going to continue no matter what. They're still going to go to college. They still got mom and dad paying the bill. They're still going to get a job. They still get to do exactly what it is, whether they have tennis or golf or soccer or volleyball, they still got it. Those international kids don't, which is why coaches want international students. Hey, everybody, and welcome. I'm Sam Coates, and this is the Driven By Podcast. Life's a lot more fun when you're all in and passionate about what you're building. This show is filled with wide-ranging conversations that will bring you insights, experiences, and expertise through the stories of what each of my guests are building. Driven by Podcast is produced by Driven by Sam Coates. And for more information on how my talented team and I serve entrepreneurs, corporations, and private families tell their stories, go to drivenbysamcoates.com. Also, for more podcast episodes and to sign up, go to drivenbysamcoats.com backslash podcast. Before we get going, let's hear from this week's sponsor. Hey, everybody. Before we get started, I want to tell you about the sponsor for this week's episode. AB Jets is a great story and great company. I'm not exactly flying around on private jets during this stage of my life, but if I were, I'd be calling AB Jets. They're one of the safest private air companies in the world. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S. Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, AB Jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle. Go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E. T-S. Hey, everybody. I hope you're having a great start to the summer. Our guest today is Oscar Subarats. A previous guest suggested Oscar, and the more I looked into him, the more I was interested. Oscar is a president of College Prospects of America, a company that has helped over 35,000 students get an education and play college sports in the United States. Many of these students are international students, and as you'll hear, Oscar grew this company into Mexico and Latin America. And according to the NCAA, over 20,000 international student athletes are competing at NCAA schools. Oscar has lived the same experience and opportunity he speaks about in this conversation. He's also an author and recently released a new book called Closing Intelligence. On this episode, you'll hear the biggest mistake that American parents and kids can make when they don't think they need to promote themselves to play college sports, why international students succeed and how their mindset can be more resilient since they have no plan B, the power of getting an education in the United States, plus so much more. Please enjoy this week's episode with Oscar Subarats. Oscar, great to see you. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for having me on your show. Yes, sir. Looking forward to this. You wrote a book and I read it. It's always fun when your guests have written a book and you can really understand them. It helps you 
come in much more prepared. I recently was serving an entrepreneur and a family on a private project, and this person is very much involved in higher education across the country. They made the comment, they said, why they believe in higher education. They said, education is the great liberator for most people, and that's why they care about it so much and helping as many people as they can get a great education. Given your work and your career, your own experience, you know, being born in Mexico, but growing up in Houston and then playing college tennis, how have you seen that statement to either be true or maybe not as true as it sounds? That's a great question, Sam. So I'll, I'll give you a background from on, on my personal standpoint, but I'll also give you a background a little bit on the families that we've helped through College Prospects of America, which is you know a little bit of the company that I that I run. Uh, on a personal standpoint, I can tell you that there is no way that my my life or the things that I've achieved would have been possible had I not had the opportunity to, you know, play college sports or or go to or or, or go to college in 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 general. You know, there's that there's that I continually hear that uh, is is college worth the money is college worth the <laughs> even the debt that some people go through and and I'm still convinced after all these years having helped hundreds and thousands of families go through the college recruiting process to to compete in at the college sports level that the experience not only the education but the experience that one gets of maturity of understanding and figuring out what it is that they really want to do in life in those experiences and contacts that, you know, between 18 and 22, you're a child. I mean, in any way that, that you want to describe it, you're still kind of a child. And just having that opportunity of those four years that really set the tone for your life, at least in my life, I, I, I wouldn't be where I am today Have had I, for example, just gone straight to to work or, or not had the, uh, the opportunity to play college sports. But on the other side of you know the families that we've all helped is we've seen entire generations and legacies be changed because that one kid that got the opportunity to play in college or that one kid that came from Colombia or South Africa or Argentina or Canada or the UK whose family didn't have the opportunity to get an education in the US and through sports was able to do it i mean some of these some of these kids are you know, they're, they're high level executives or they're gone on to change their, their, their countries. And, and all that was created by the U.S. education system, which is a reason that there's over a million international students in this country every year that come to get an education in the United States. And I don't think people do realize how much the rest of the world values what the U.S. provides. And sometimes in the U.S., we overlook that. We don't give it the value that it deserves, but the rest of the world saying, how do I get there? And y'all have helped, I read, over 35,000 students. Is that true? That is absolutely true. Okay. So can you share, you were talking about yourself personally, and you talked about the families and students, student athletes that you've served and helped. Personally, given the fact that you were a college tennis player, you said that your life would have not looked the same. Can you elaborate on that? Well, to elaborate on that, I have to kind of go back to my to my dad. So my dad was a very high-level tennis player. He actually played Davis Cup for Mexico. And my dad was given the opportunity to come to the United States as a college athlete when he was, you know, 17, 18 years old 
simply because you know a coach, the coach at Lamar University in Beaumont, Texas, saw him play at a tournament in in Mexico, and his life would have you know just being able to come to United States, not even speaking English really, he, he didn't even speak English, and getting a getting a chemical engineer degree at Lamar University, you know, Boomtown, Oil Town, Texas, back in the day was a huge opportunity. And he actually ended up working for Phillips Petroleum Company at a very high level because of that. So you have a kid that's just a kid living in Mexico and all of a sudden he's a VP of Latin America for Phillips Petroleum Company simply for that opportunity. So you fast forward that. And then, you know, me as a a kid, I was born in Mexico because my dad was working abroad and all that. But just that opportunity set because of college sports. And then, so I come from a large family and of that large family that was born in Mexico City, my brother and I are the only ones that were given that opportunity to come legally to this country at the age of, you know, two and four and be able and be raised in the U.S. I mean, what an opportunity, what an opportunity. And so, you know, growing up in the U.S. and 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 being able to get recruited to play college tennis at a school like uh, University of Louisiana Lafayette, at the time top thirty Division One program, I can tell you that there's no one in my family that has been able to achieve whether it's success or wealth or or even had the opportunity to do that that didn't come to this country. And, and, and play college sports or, or, or went to college here. So, I mean, that just really tells you what, what the opportunity that this country provides as opposed to people that, aren't, that don't have that opportunity. I don't know if I answered the question, but for me, it was, I was given that opportunity, but that foundation set, hey, you can play college tennis, you can study in the United States, and then you can do whatever you want in life. Uh, there's no barriers. And I've lived with my life with that mentality that I was given those opportunities, but there never are any barriers. And a lot of times we uh, create our own barriers. So I don't know if I answered that question correctly. Well, how you, however you want to answer it, that's the correct way in my opinion. But <laughs> has that gratitude or edge, has it ever fluctuated inside of you personally? Or has it stuck with you? That gratitude or edge sticks has stuck with me my my entire life in several ways. Uh, one is, you know, we were talking a few minutes ago before we, we, you know, about my daughter. How we're always my daughter's three years old, and I can tell you, my daughter at the age of three can distinguish between people that have and don't have. They can distinguish between, you know, how lucky she is to be able to live the life that she, that she does. She even says it all the time. She'll see like, daddy do, you know, and she'll say, I don't have, she'll say, daddy, um, kids that are less fortunate don't have that opportunity to do they? And she's three years old because we've exposed her to things that don't, that most parents don't expose their kid to. Like we, we, we recently went to Mexico, rented a little condo and, uh, put my kid in, in a, in a school in Mexico for six months at the age of three, just for her to, see what incredible benefits and what an incredible life she has in this country. So yeah, in that way, in my personal life too, but also in my, in my business life, you know, there's people that they have plans five, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, and they have these goals. I've lived my life saying, I, I treasure and value, and I'm grateful for what I have today, today, to, for what I have today. 
And it's more than 99% of the people. I'm still in the 1% of the world population. And most people in, in the United States are probably within the 10% of the world population. And so I value and I treasure what I have today. If that becomes greater, great. But I have to treasure what I have today. And that's how I live my life every single day. Uh, I'm 46 years old. If at the age of 46, it's time for me to go, you know, I've, I've traveled around the world. I've, I've built businesses. I've lived a great life. And most people in the world will never even have grass or deer in front of their yard to look at. So that's kind of how I live my life. And I think sets the pace for wanting to do more because you're grateful for what you have today, you know, and, and I think that that is the way that my wife, my family live our lives. And, and that's how the way we run our businesses. A few weeks ago, I was doing something at a university and this was done in, in a private way, but this, this gentleman was talking about, he received this award and he started crying, talking about his mother when he was a year old, walking to the United States and him being able to get into this country and then being able to, you know, go to school, go to high school, mm -hmm. first generation college student. And man, the gratitude that he had for his mother and knowing everything that she went through and trying to imagine everything that she did and the, and the choices she made to give him an education and, and to hear how he was being honored and distinguished, you know, at this stage of life, it, it's just, it, you see in him that it, it hit him in the deepest part of his heart. And it was incredible to just listen to it. Wow. You know, it just, that just kind of reminds me a little bit of, you know, so for example, when I was growing up, you know, I'm an entrepreneur and but my, my dad started the corporate, you know, he went through the corporate America role after he graduated and went to work for Phillips. But at one time there was the oil bust. And I remember when we were kids, I mean, we see it now differently later. We didn't understand what was going on, but we had to move houses. All of a sudden, we didn't have cars. All of a sudden, dad was like, no, we can't go to McDonald's, get your Happy Meal. And then my dad decided to make the shift saying, I will never work for corporate America again. My, my future belongs in my hands. And he, I remember he sold anything that you could possibly think of for him to, to provide an incredible life for us. He sold vacuum cleaners. He sold cowboy boots. He sold car alarms. He sold, then he sold, then he said, well, I can sell something bigger. Let's sell real estate. Let's, let's sell mortgages. And so, you know, the idea of you're given this opportunity and that's what, what you were talking about. You're given this opportunity and you don't see it as you're growing up. But now I think, wow, the reason I am that I, why I am is because I was raised by parents who work their butt off, literally their butt off to give us a life that we had, you know, and it was a great life. You know, I, I didn't grow up poor. I broke, grew up uh, in a middle to upper class neighborhood where I was really the only Hispanic kid. And, and so they worked their butt off to do that. And, and I dedicated actually that, the, my book to my dad because and I said, you failed so many times, but you, even though you failed, you were able to give us a life that, that it was just amazing. So I, I, I'm so grateful for people like that that you mentioned that they ha that understand that gratitude in their hearts that no one's self-made. I don't know if you've ever read uh, Malcolm Gladwell's, you know, The Outliers, like no one's self-made. There was always someone that was that made it possible for you to to get where you are and and I love that
So can you explain College Prospects of America and can you explain what it looked like when you joined them after you finished playing college tennis at Louisiana Lafayette? Right. So College Prospects of America is the, I would say it's the pioneer of the college recruiting industry. What, what that means is uh, mom and dad uh, want their, their child to compete at the college level and they just don't know, you know what to do. Uh, how to get noticed, how to get recruited, what are the right schools. Now for super star athletes, blue chip, what we call blue chip athletes, usually it just kind of happens by themselves. You know, college coaches are out there looking. But blue chip athletes are <laughs> far and, you know, there's not that many of them. And most kids that want to just complete at the lower level D1 or D2 or D3 or NAIA or junior college levels, they don't get noticed or recruited. So you've got what you have is the college recruiting industry and it's companies like College Prospects of America that make that possible. When I graduated from college, I noticed that there was this huge market, market opportunity. I was 21 years old. I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I didn't want to go to work for corporate America. I was literally a kid playing tennis, drinking beer, <laughs> and talking to girls, uh, Louisiana, Laf uh, yeah, Louisiana Lafayette. Like, what did you learn at Louisiana Lafayette? Play tennis, talk to girls, drink beer. And I joke about that all the time. But I mean, it was a great school. It was, it was a really fun school to go to. Uh, I got. I feel like I got a great education. And you know, I loved. I loved going to school there. But I had no idea what I wanted to do. And then I came up, and I and what happened is I saw this need. There was even back then, and it still is true today. Sports like tennis, golf, and soccer are dominated by international athletes in the United States in college sports. So for just to give you an example, over 30% of tennis players competing at the college level in the United States are international. Uh, it's, it's roughly around 20 to 30% for golf as well, golf and soccer. So there's thousands of non-internationals starting in the United States playing college sports. Now that's a very, we won't get into that topic. You know, there's people that like that. There's people who don't like that. It's a, right. it, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a sensitive subject we won't get into, but that was the need. And at that point there was no one helping these kids, no one. And so on my own team, I was the only U S resident or U S citizen per se playing on that team. And I thought, who, how did these kids get here? Like, how you were the only here? one? I was the only one. And you were first generation American from Mexico. Right. So I'm a first, exactly. I'm a first generation uh, immigrant. Yes. From Mexico. And I was the only one on that team when I graduated that was not U.S. residents. US, like they were all from Brazil or South Africa or somewhere. And at the division one level, it's like this. So I thought, how do these kids get here? There's got to be this huge market opportunity of helping these kids. And if these are the good kids that come here, what about the kids behind these kids? They don't come here. And what about the kids behind those kids? So like these kids are all the number one kids in their country. But what about the number of kids that's 10 and 15 and 20 and 50 and 1,000? Like, no one knows that they exist. They would love to come to these D2s, D3s, junior. So I actually thought of the idea of, of I created this business plan in an entrepreneurship class in my last semester of college. And I, I created this company of bringing kids from international locations to the US. And I actually have the business plan. It's still in my safe today, by the way, as a, as a wonderful memorial. And, and so I graduated and, and my dad and I were like, well, what do we do? Like, what, what are you, you going to do with your life? 
And so I said, why don't I go and get an MBA? Because of course, that's what kids do when they have no idea what to do with their life, right? I go get an MBA, you know, business. And he goes, no, 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 no. Grab that little entrepreneur thing that you did. And instead of, because he's going to have to pay for an MBA, right? Instead of me supporting you for an MBA, start this business. Like I, I, Hyman, which is my dad's name, will pay your expenses in Mexico for the first two years. Now, I'm only going to give you two years. I'll pay your rent. That doesn't mean he is living in like, no, I'll pay your rent with, with your aunt who's going to rent you a room. <laughs> and, and you go start this idea that you have. And he said this, and I, and I, I put it in the book. He said, you're going to learn more in those two years about life and business than any MBA program out there. And if you fail, you fail. But you will get such a worldly education by doing that. And so that's what I was going to do. But then I discovered that there was this company called College Prospects of America that was already doing this, but for U.S. student athletes. So in 1986, College Prospects of America is a company that uh, was created to help U.S. student athletes. And And it was a great business. And so I, I came up to the president at the time and I said, hey, can I, can I expand your name and your service or your business to international? And he's like, sure, go ahead. So you called him and flew to his office and just walked yeah. in. <laughs> Basically. Basically, I called him up and flew to Logan, Ohio and said, be happy to help you. And of course, it's not like he's going to pay me any money. It's not like he's going to give me, it's like, sure, go ahead, get to work. And that's what I did. That's what I did. I mean, it was a program that you sold and made a commission from and let's get, let's get it. Let's go to the trenches of sales. And so I started knocking on doors in Mexico city and then those doors opened and I was able to open the doors of the Mexican tennis federation, the Mexican golf federation, like red tape, a lot of organizations, a lot of private clubs or just private. There was no internet back then or no Google pay-per-click no social media. It was just like, you know, old school, direct sales knocking on the door and it worked. And then we expanded to other countries, Colombia and Ecuador and Argentina and Peru. And over time it just grew. And then uh, in 2014, uh, I bought College Prospects of America. I bought out the company, which is why today I'm the president and CEO of College Prospects of America. And today most of our business comes, still comes from internationally uh, and we still do some, you know, USA and Canada, but most of it comes from international students. I don't know if if I gave a big, a good enough example of where of where we are, but you know, over time we've helped thousands and thousands of of kids, both for, for from both the U.S., which is why we have our Hall of Fame has some really fascinating names in there because we've been around so long. Ricky Williams, Mark Pryor. Yeah, just just More. a couple names. <laughs> and so so internationally we've kind of done the same thing. We have uh just even in Memphis, we have we have uh players that have played for Memphis tennis and, player. He he was Devils champion, right? Yeah, right. And so we've just been able to change lives and impact lives and what I always say is we're not really in the college recruiting sports industry, we're in the changing lives industry. We're in the changing legacies industry. You grab a kid from Colombia, Argentina, Peru, anywhere. And, and you give them that opportunity, their life, their legacy, generations can change from that. So that's what we are. Um, and and I'm, I'm very proud. I'm very proud to, to, to have done what we've done over the years and changed so many families. So did you start with tennis, golf, or what sports did you start with? Well, naturally it was tennis. <laughs> so, 
So naturally with tennis, so I would, I remember back then I said, would I do that again? I was like, probably not. I was just young. And, and so find out, okay, where's the national tennis tournament of Mexico and, and, and get on a bus and, and get a, a cheap, you know, motel 12 or however the cheapest room would be and just go to the national tournament. Uh, luckily people wouldn't kick me out. Uh, you know, it's not like I was paying sponsorships or anything. I was just simply saying, Hey, you know, I, I can give you the opportunity to come to America to study. And, and so, you know, I always say, and I mentioned that actually in my book, I said, you know, 30% of international student athletes today, are, you know, are from other countries. And I like to think that those doors that I was opening back then led to that because there's a lot of kids that come to the United States today, today that don't use College Prospects of America. But the idea, the goal, the, hey, I know someone else that's done it. Hey, I, ha- I know 15 friends that are studying in America. I mean, it really was started because Oscar at the age of 21 was knocking on the doors of, of, the, tennis, of the tennis federations and the golf federations. And, and so, I mean, I'm not saying that I had anything, everything to do. I'm saying that I think that domino effect has led to, so we start with tennis, then with golf, then with soccer. And, and so I, I'm just very proud of that. Did you ever almost quit because it got so hard? I almost quit when I saw Jerry Maguire. Because <laughs> 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 I remember one time that it was just, it was just too hard. It was just like, you know, because my friends are, you know, they're getting jobs and they're making money and, you know, they're talking about, I've got this job and that. And I'm just, I'm like, like, there's, I'm not making any money on this. I'm just, you know, spinning my wheels trying to, it was fun. Had a great time, but you know, you got to sell a lot of services at a thousand bucks to make money. Back then we were selling our services at actually less than a thousand bucks. Today we sell services for thousands of dollars. But back then you, it was like, you know, you had to get a client to make any money. And I was at the end of the day working for someone, making a small commission of that. You know, so you're still only making a small piece of the pie. And so, yeah, I mean, many times I saw Jerry Maguire and I, I remember one time I, I sent my dad a, what I called the mission statement, you know, and I said, I don't know if this is for me. I, I, you know, why don't I just go back and get a job? But he didn't ever let me quit. He goes, I told you, give it the time and you can turn this into something big. And, and that's what we did. How many years did it take before you started to see success or started to feel like it wasn't a struggle like that? We probably got some traction in about three years. Because what ended up happening is I, I kind of got lucky. I kind of got lucky because, and he's still my friend today. He, the guy that was running the Mexican Tennis Federation opened the doors for us and, and gave us free reign to be at all the national events. And all of a sudden we had, I mean, we were, I, I, I hired people on the phone and, and we were basically cold calling and the boiler room. And um, we got a lot of kids to sign up. I mean, we got a lot of kids to sign up. And then I worked a deal to do the uh, actual tennis tournament with the Mexican Tennis Federation where we flew coaches down. And it was a big deal. And so around three years, I said, you know, we can really turn this into a business. And I thought, but why just Mexico? Like, why just locally? And and that's when I went up to CPO and I said, okay, you guys. And what I did is I said, I I went up to, to Tracy and I said, Tracy, look. I'm going to create this beast of a business. Is Tracy the CEO? He was the CEO. And he's still my, yeah, he's still my friend today, Tracy Jackson. I said, we're going to create this beast of, the, beast of this business that's going to have nothing to do with College Prospects of America the way that you run it in the US. It's basically College Prospects International. You're going to have no idea what we're doing. We're going to pay your money, but just let us do, let us do our own thing. Uh, but I, I want the rights of all international 
countries, basically. And, uh, and that's what happened. And that's what happened. And then all of a sudden we said, okay, why can't we do this in Colombia? Why can't we do this in Ecuador? Why can't we do this in Spain? Why can't we do and that's And, that, and, and it was just really a, about 30% of our clients come from word of mouth. And it, and, it, and it really was like that back then. You help one family and then you ask them, well, who else can we help? And they give you the names of five other families that are looking to do the same thing. Now, back then we didn't have any competitors. We have some very fierce competitors nowadays, but back then we were the only ones doing it. So. I mean, it was, it was, I mean, we were just signing people up left and right. And, uh, and it was wonderful. It was wonderful. I mean, I was a 25 year old kid, you know, riding around in a convertible sports car <laughs> thinking he was thinking he was doing something special, but it was fun. It was a lot of fun. It was, it was literally a lot of fun to see that growth in helping those families, uh, and making money doing it. I mean, why not? I mean, it, it was really a lot of fun. And then I hi- started hiring people, created, started a, a, an office down there, hired a big sales team. Uh, it, was, it was great. Hey, everybody. We're going to take a quick pause here from the show and hear a word from one of our sponsors. After that, we'll get back to the show. Do you want to make efficient use with your time? Now more than ever, traveling hassle-free is harder to find. AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service with nonstop access to most destinations around the USA. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets jet card that gets you 10 or 25 hour flight options that makes your experience hassle-free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the U.S. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS, that's J-E-T-S, to travel on your own terms. So a family, their son or daughter, is good at soccer, good at tennis, good at golf, whatever sport it may be, and they may not even know that they have this opportunity in front of them or they've heard about it through a friend and they call you and they say, hey, we want our kid to get educated in America. Can you make this happen for us? Is that simply what's on their mind when they're looking for something like this? Yeah. um, And and actually, this is a two-part. I want to actually take this as two parts. Let's talk about the U.S. kid and then let's talk about the international kid because I don't want – I don't want your listeners to think that we don't help U.S. kids. Like we help U.S. kids. We've helped hundreds and thousands of U.S. kids over the years. Just it just happens that just the market has taken us a lot internationally. But let me tell you what happens with U.S. kids because it happened to me. I mean, I I I'm a U.S. kid, and it still happens today because we've put we still put U.S. kids in. But even family members that are great athletes that are still going through the process today, go through the same thing that I did when I was 18, 19. That is, when you live in the United States, you think it's just going to happen. You think it's just going to happen. You think my kid's good enough if I spend enough money on camps, and if I spend enough money on showcases, and if I spend it, someone's going to find out who my, my son or daughter is. And that's the thought. So, or coach is going to help me, or my or my team's going to, you know, all of a sudden miraculously be discovered by a college coach. And the truth is, there's over twenty thousand high schools in the United States. There's, you know, seven thousand kids registered in 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 golf associations. There's, you know, all these kids trying to compete at the basketball or football level. And unless you're a standout, 
it's just not going to happen. Like you actually have to be proactive and do something about it. So that's why I think what happens in the US and, and the problem in the US is that most families don't think they need help. So they don't look for help and they don't find help. And what ends up happening is they just don't play in college. Uh, they just don't play in college. And at some point they just say, well, let, let me just do what everybody else does. Let me just go to the local big school, whether it be Memphis or Texas A&M or UT, and I'll just be a normal student. When they really could have played in college, if they understood that playing in college doesn't just happen, you have to do something about it. And that's where we would come in. But on the international standpoint, yes, fam it's families are different. They know the opportunity exists because they've heard that somebody else did it but then they just have no idea how to do it. Okay, if I live in, you know, in, in Nigeria, which we have clients for, how, how do, where do I even start? And, and, you know, they actually have the same problem that the U.S. kid does. With, no one knows that they exist. The difference is they know they don't have access to that information. They know they don't have access to getting noticed by themselves. So they come up to us. And so about 30% of our clients come from referrals. 30% of our clients just come from internet, Google leads, and uh, the other 30% come from us being present at certain events around the world. But that's, that's really what happens. And then once they approach us, we go through a whole filtering process of, okay, can we, can this, does this family actually qualify financially, you know, academic-wise, sports-wise to compete in the United States? And so if they do, then we will offer them the a service to help them and guide them from basically nothing to being contacted or contacting the right college coaches, the admissions process, the scholarship process, the NCAA process, the test, everything. Basically, you know, they're in step one and we take them for to step 10 and we're everything in the middle. It's it really is a guidance, consulting, handholding, concierge, marketing program that finds them the right schools but also helps them along the way. And so, and even when they come to the United States, we're still there to help them with, you know, two years down the road. It happened a lot in COVID. A lot of kids here. Boise State drops the baseball team. What do you do? Do you just go back to your country? No, you call, you call us up. We need to find you a new school. And so that gives you a very general idea of, of how we deal with that in, in both those markets. What do you look for to see if you can help somebody or if you can't? Are we mostly, let's, let's just go into the international realm there because in, in the U.S., it really is, okay, what, what's the kid's profile and, and you know, does he have the, the profile, the, the athletic profile and the credentials to compete, whether it's at a D3 school or a D1 school or a junior college? That's really in the U.S. Like, does he have the ability? And just, it's just data. I mean, we've, we've been doing it for so long. You know, I can tell you, just tell me who a kid is and I'll tell you, well, they could probably compete at so-and-so level or they couldn't. In international, it's a lot, it's a little bit different because finances play a long way. We can't sell dreams that can't be reached. And that's the fine line in, in, my, in my industry. You can sell to kids all day long. You can sell to families all day long and make a lot more money. But some of those families really just, do, just don't have the financial means to come to the United States and study. What, what I mean by that is, you know, back 10, 20 years ago, there was a lot of full rides out there. Most girls were getting full rides. A lot of kids were getting full rides in tennis, golf, and soccer. That just doesn't exist anymore. There's just too much competition. And so unless you're a superstar athlete, most kids are not getting full rides. And so most college programs are giving limited or partial, or they're finding ways for the school to give an academic scholarship somehow 
And we have to make sure that we can match that family's athletic ability with their financial ability. What does that mean? If you're number one in your country, we can probably get you a full ride somewhere. So you can be poor. Okay, fine. You can be poor. Uh, and we get, and we do even give scholarships to kids that just can't afford our services. We've been we've done that for over twenty years. You know, the son of the golf caddy who's caddying in the Bogota Country Club in Colombia who doesn't have a penny can never afford our services, but the kid just happens to play golf and he's going to get a full ride somewhere. But most of our families aren't like that. Most of our families are families where, you know, they have a certain athletic ability. They're going to get a partial scholarship somewhere. And that partial scholarship is going to give them the ability to come to this country and pay anywhere between $10,000 a year to $20,000 a year, maybe sometimes less, sometimes more. And that family has to have that financial ability to pay that excess, whether it be through friends or family or selling a home or whatever they need to do. So that's where the, where that's, that's the hardest part of our job is saying, okay, this family, are we, we're going to sell them our, our services. But are they going to actually reach the goal? Because can we can we get them what they can afford? And we're really good at that. You know, over ninety percent of our families get recruited and come to the United States and study. So that's a that's an awesome stat. But there's a lot of people. There's a, there's other companies in the industry that don't understand this, and they're just selling services and 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 literally selling dreams that can't be acquired. And and we have to be very careful not to do that. And we always have been. And so you're saying from a value standpoint, if you put the dollar above the human being, then you're going to promise things you can't deliver and you might have really good, strong revenue growth, but you're going to have kids and families that are devastated because they're told they can get in somewhere and it's just not the reality. That is absolutely, that is absolutely correct. So I would say that the number one reason that a family can't come to the United States is really financial because they can, they can start studying English. They can get maybe better at their sport, but you can't. In, in Latin America, it isn't like the United States. You can't create a dollar from, you know, you just, families just don't have that ability. And so, yes, I mean, we could, we could be a lot bigger if we were selling false dreams. And, and I like sleeping at night. I like thinking that I'm going to go to heaven. I'm a Christian. And, and that's how we run, we run our business. Uh, you know, we're a, we're a sales team, but we got, we're a sales team that has to impact lives. And if we can't impact a life, then... Then, then we're just a fraud, aren't we? Well, it's respectable hearing you say it in the way you built the business. But I think if any, any of us are being honest, you know, sometimes you don't always do what you want to do. And obviously the goal is to stick to it every day yeah. and yeah. be able to say it that, you know, you can do it and own where you got off track. And that's incredible. Just curious, what do you see? I, I saw that there's roughly 20 million college students around the country right now as a whole. I saw that there's roughly... 2.9 million college athletes, D1 through 3, are all of NCAA. Mm -hmm. And, you know, roughly you shared a little bit over 1 million international students in college in the USA right now. That's the data I saw, and some of that's what you shared. As much as you're able to share or willing to share with a lot of universities struggling, certain ones across the country, and with uh, the one metric I don't have in front of me is if the number of people are increasing or decreasing going to college each year, but then the cost of college, what does that look like internationally? Where is it trending from your standpoint? From our standpoint, what we've seen is a, is a big shift, and I'll tell you where I'm seeing it. 
I can't give you much data in the U.S. I mean, I, I, it's just not my forte to to go that route. I have heard that companies in the recruiting industry that are catering or, or marketing in the U.S. or finding U.S. kids are are finding that their market is declining. I, I have heard that uh, substantially, not only with less college programs, but also less kids wanting to go to college or less kids wanting to play college sports. Uh, and I think that's brutally hurting the small schools. I know that is to be true. You know, everyone's still going to want to go to A&M and UT and, and, and all that stuff in, in Memphis, but it's those small schools with those small programs that, that used to be able to find kids, I think, that are, that are being impacted very much so since, you know, COVID. On an international standpoint, though, you know, the, the U.S. is such a huge opportunity for international kids. And I see a continued growth in the U.S. colleges and universities of more international kids. And the U.S., the colleges and universities even didn't cater to U.S. To international kids. I think it's going to be continue a trend where they continue to cater more to international kids. I think that the U.S. product and what it offers the education system is, especially in the, in the, in the sports industry, is, it's unparalleled. It just, it, 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 the United States offers an opportunity they know it just is not offered anywhere else, which is come to the United States, play sports, we'll pay for everything, we'll give you some sort of scholarship, you'll get a great education, you know, and, and you can do both, by the way. You can do both and we'll, we'll love you for that. It just doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. So that's on the athletic standpoint, but on the academic standpoint, I think that a lot of youth schools are going to start looking, especially in Asia. And there's, and as Latin America particularly goes from, you know, low class to middle class to high, there's just so much money in Latin America today that I think a lot of the U.S. schools that in the past didn't get go there. They're going to say, well, look at all these kids we get in Mexico and Bogota and Santiago de Chile and Buenos Aires and 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 you're all, I'm already seeing that trend now. What I've seen, though, in my industry is basically companies that have ignored what we've, d- what we've done in the past over 20 years saying, oh, well, you know, they've just got a little market in Latin America and, you know, we just kind of let us do our own thing. You know, some of our fiercest competitors are looking for into us as potential, you know, acquisitions or, hey, how do we compete with these guys or what are they or, or how can we get into those markets? That tells you a lot that their markets are shrinking and they're going to international markets to look for those new souls or those new students, those new student athletes. Uh, companies in Europe are starting to look, you know, in South America and in Africa and for those kids. So I, I see that like there's this there's this dollar sign in the US that international companies and international kids are seeing for the U.S., uh, as opposed to in the United States, kids are seeing this as, well, college is costing me too much money. Where's the value? I don't want to play college sports. It's too hard. Things like that. You referenced several things earlier about hiring, sales, relationally being connected to people, helping people with all the paperwork, you know, different things with the government, with the institution. Just there's a lot there. Given the fact that this is 
one of the most important decisions, or if not the, the most important decision that someone would have made at this stage of their life, and then the financial investment from their parents or grandparents or themselves coming from another country. What have you learned about entrepreneurship and building a tight operation that is so dynamic in what it has to cover on a day-to-day basis with so much at stake for the individual and also making sure you deliver from a process standpoint? That's a great question. The first thing that comes to mind is culture. Uh, I, I mean, it just, you know, the culture of people that are working with you and for you to do this whole process. So we've got from the person that's coming in contact with that family at an event to the, the, the salesperson that talks to that family to the, what we call them coaches, to the customer service agent that guides that family step to step to, you know, the video department that, you know, does the video. I mean, every single part of the process has to understand the why of why of why of what they're doing something. And, and I, and I, I don't think I know that in my company, that why is, it isn't necessarily seeing that, that family as a money sign. I mean, I can tell you that our culture is we need to do everything we can to deliver what we told this family we were going to deliver, which is that kid in the United States studying, you know, and getting an education and playing sports. Like, that's what we said we were going to do. And everything is aligned around that culture of we need to do everything possible to make that happen. Now, sometimes it doesn't happen. Sometimes the kid plays sport, quits sports, or sometimes the kid gets hurt, or sometimes the kid falls in love and decides that doesn't doesn't want that opportunity anymore. There's there's things that we can't control, but that culture in a tight ship. And you mentioned a tight ship of, all right, this family is entrusting with us, has just paid us, you know, many thousand dollars to help them navigate this process. We can't take that lightly. We can't, we just can't, we just can't, we just can't take that lightly. And as a leader, I'm continually, continually stressing to people that what they do matters and what, what, what we do matters. And I think that whether you're in the restaurant industry or whether you're selling scholarships or where you're selling, you know, educational consulting or where you're doing insurance or I don't care what you're selling. If you don't believe that what you do every single day and the little things that you do matter, then you just lose a love for what you're doing. And then it just becomes money. And, and we're very careful about that. Uh, everyone wants to make money. I want to make money. Of course, I want to make money. But money is no fun if you're hating your life every single day. And, and I love my life. I love what we built. I love the team that we have. I love... And I think it just goes down to that leadership thing of our culture is simply about we're going to help these families, but what we're doing actually matters. And we might not see, we might not see it. We might not see. I mean, that kid could go to the United States, come to the United States, get an education, go back to the country, become the CEO of something or the president. We might find out, we might not find out that that happened. But we have to believe that what we're doing is going to matter. And I think that's the key. Day in, day out. And that drives everything. Yeah. Yeah. What have you seen with a woman or a man when they come to the United States? And I know we could talk about United States, stay in the United States or come into the United States to study and play, but let's just take an international student. What do they need or what do they have to do to stay in it? 
to stay in the process, to stay in the journey versus being like, I don't want to do this anymore. I need to go. I have a story for that from my own life. So I, I mentioned earlier that when I graduated from college, all the kids on the team were international, but that's not how I entered into college. So when I entered into college, my freshman team had, I, I believe, three, four American kids. And this is going to answer the question. I had three or four American kids. And this happens every day in every, call, in every top program in America. And in many other programs, this happens every single day. And, 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 it, and it happened then, it happens today. Those four kids, those American kids had their life, most of them, or a lot of them, I'm not saying everyone. I mean, I, I understand that not everyone comes from certain backgrounds, but their life was solved regardless of what happened. So, you know, even if they quit the team tomorrow and all of them quit within the first six months, because it was just too hard to be in a top 30 division one program. It was just too hard. You know, getting up at 5 a.m. to, as coach said, that run a 5.30 mile or else you don't play does not go in line with my mentality that I need to party or be at the bars because that's what my college life is supposed to be. So they all quit. Within six months, they're all gone. But you know what? Their life's going to continue no matter what. They're still going to go to college. They still got mom and dad paying the bill. They're still going to get a job. They still get to do exactly what it is, whether they have tennis or golf or soccer or volleyball, they still got it. Those international kids don't, which is why there's 30% because that's not, that's not market related. That's coach related. Coaches want international students. They, they want them. And yes, it's, for some coaches, it's been a harder road to accept that. But at the end of the day, those kids are going to appreciate that. And I'm not saying all of them. I'm saying a large majority of them are going to appreciate more likely that opportunity because you know what? The answer to your question is, as long as you do what you need to do, you're going to stay in the country and succeed and, and, and be on that team because you know, the kid coach recruited you. It's not like he's just going to kick you and send you home as long as you're doing what you need to do. But a lot of US kids aren't going to do what they need to do. They, they want to party and become part of a sorority or fraternity or whatever. Those international kids are here to change their lives. Like they're getting a given an opportunity that 99.9999% of the planet's never going to have. They're the 1% of their country and they're not going to let that go that easily. So they do what they need to do. And most of them or a large percentage of them the, and, and their stats here. I mean, I, I don't have the stats, but you can look it up. It's in the NCAA. The graduation rates and percentages of international students are off the chart. When they know what's at stake, that keeps them in. Yeah, they know what's at stake. They know that it's, you know, for most of them, it's if I lose this, I got to go home. I got to go home. Can you speak to earlier, you were talking about that rejection didn't bother you. And you talked about how hard it was to essentially, you had this idea, your dad encouraged you not to go get your MBA, to go make this work. And he said, you learn more first two years doing this and what you would do in an MBA. So you, you go to the Midwest and you tell the owner of College Prospects of America, hey, I want to do this. And you just start knocking on doors in Mexico City. And then, you know, things go from there. And you said, very difficult for three years. How have your own competitive background, your own wiring, not being insecure, where did that come from? And then how did you have to lean on that to really get through it? Well, I never said I wasn't insecure. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for the correction. (laughs) So, um, 
No, but I'm not. I'm not very insecure. But I've become more secure as life goes on. So I was that. Co- I was that skinny kid in high school that had no friends. By the way, that was the weird. I never. I never went to homecoming. I never went to. A, you know, actually, I think I begged someone to go to prom with me. I ne- You know, I didn't date. I wasn't one of the cool kids. I was just weird. I was different. You know, I was the Latino kid. Uh, so a lot in my life created a lot of insecurity. But it was literally my parents who I remember even in the fridge. I mean, they would stick things like, you're number one. You can do anything you achieve. You know, my, they were both athletes. My mom, I, I, you might not know this, but is a five-time Mexican national golf champion. She's won the Mexican national championship more times than Lorena Ochoa. But the problem is that it was back then you played for pride. You didn't play for money. So she was poor, <laughs> you know, that's incredible because it doesn't matter how many times you win the Mexican national championship, you know, back in the day. And my dad played Davis cup for Mexico. And, 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 and so, I mean, that's the background that I, that I grew up in. It was, it was world-class athletes who expected me to perform at a world-class level in everything that I did. And that wasn't easy to grow up with. Because the world's telling you one thing. The world's telling you, you don't have friends, you're skinny, you're this, I got picked up online, and you get at home and you live in this bubble that everybody's telling you you're great and you're going to achieve all this stuff. And, and that, that's the world that I grew up in. It was a world that mom and dad did never accepted. Uh, like, for example, I remember one time I was playing in high school and I, and I quit in the third set because I said that I had a, a cramp. And my dad, he was so disappointed. He goes, and I'll never remember. He goes, he goes, you don't, you're not, <laughs> I'm going to cry when I said this. You're not a loser. Losers quit. And I don't care if you have to be carried off that court because you've got a cramp, you know, you stay in it. Even if you lose, that's okay. But you don't quit. You never quit. And, uh, and that's just the mentality I've grown up with. And in everything that I've ever done, I get very sensitive when I talk about my dad because he was a great man. He was a, he was an, an amazing man. He was very hard, very hard on us. But what happened is one day, and and here's the, here's the great point of this. One day when I got to college, uh, and I grew a little bit more into my body, and I you know I started hitting the weights, and I got stronger, and I realized you know, and and one day it just hit me is like wow, I'm not that skinny kid anymore. Like girls actually want to talk to me. And, and I actually have, I have, I, I actually can talk to them, you know, because my parents grew me up to be educated and, and, and smart and, and intelligent and, and, and well-mannered. And I was like, wow, like this is the way I grew up, but now the world's telling me something different. I can take this and I can do anything with it. Right. So I think that, I think the point of that is those positive influences and those positive things in your life are going to win over those negative things. And so when it comes to my career and everything I've done, you're always going to have walls. You're always going to have barriers. You're always going to have people that tell you no. They're always going to have people that are jealous of you. You're always going to have people that, that they want to bring you down. But here's the thing is that positive attitude that I can do anything is going to win over that. It's not, it's not that that goes away. It's that the world's going to tell you one thing, but your mind is going to push you to achieve and to not let those things, you know, happen to you. So that's that's how it, that's how it's always been for me, and I call it a little bit of a superpower. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, everything and everything in in my life. Even I mentioned the book. I met my wife. She didn't want to give me the time of day, but I was like, "What do you mean? 
what do you mean you're not going to do time of the day? Yeah. <laughs> you know? What do you mean? And then you worked your process. And, and then, then I worked uh, my process. Yeah. No, I remember, I remember, and, and I, this is actually not in that book, but you know, I tell the story all the time and I don't have time for that big story, but I actually had someone that say, Ooh, that, that blonde girl that you, that you're in. Oh no, you, ha- you have no chance with her. Like, like so many guys have tried to ask her out. And I literally looked at girl and I said, you don't know me. <laughs> like, like, Yes. Like I, I, you know, I'm in love with that girl. Where is she? So in, in every part of my life in the business and everything, it's like, okay, who's telling me no, what's the wall? How can we overcome that wall? I love it. When you think about your parents immigrating to the United States and thinking about their own environment, it's very clear. They're incredible people. They're tough minded people. They're faithful people. It's hard enough as it is when you're born into and grown up in this country and have generations of family here. I can imagine a completely different ball game when you're the first generation to put roots down here. Absolutely. It's something to really appreciate. So, you know, as we've talked about a little bit, you've recently written and released a book called Closing Intelligence. What are the things or what are the advice that you can give to someone else that really make it worth it or not worth it to write a book? So when it comes to writing a, writing the, a, a book, I'll, I'll give you why that idea of that book started. And I think that'll answer the question. It was just like, there's this seed. Now he says there's a seed that God put in my heart to write something that you could read easily and could impact your life or the other of, or a someone else's life by just taking little tidbits of the book and actionable steps that you could implement today. And so the things that I've learned in my life through you know, training hundreds of salespeople or leading a company or just life in general, I've traveled all over the world. I, I literally appreciate everything that we have in America, just traveling all over the world and saying, okay, you can't be me and I don't expect Sam to be Oscar and I can't be Sam. But what are those things that, that, I've, that I've learned or that I do that give me the ability to have an over a superpower ability to get people to say yes. You know, in anything that I've ever sold, my, my closing rates are off the charts. I was at one time the top world producer for College Prospects in America when I was working for them. Uh, I've proven to do, to do this over and for other businesses. And so what are those things as a salesperson, as a human being, that are teachable? That if you grab those, would allow you to immediately, you can't clone, I can't clone myself, but what can I teach you that will give you that a little bit of that superpower? Where with your with your family, with your spouse, with your boss, with your employees, whether it's building a business, whether you're in sales, because it is a sales book, but it's more of a life book. It's it's how to get people to say yes in life and business. It's not about ma- manipulating people. It's what are those things that, what are those traits that if you applied some of those today would make you that much better in achieving the things that you want in life. And, and I just think that in, in, in the whole premise is people that get yes in life in every part of their life are just happier people. And, and they have, just have a better attitude because not because they think they can overpower people, simply because they can achieve the things that they want in life. So I don't know if that kind of answered your question as to of why that process, but to sum it all up is like, it's like this. If you're going to write a book, 
it's not just, hey, I'm going to put, I mean, this, it took me five years to write this, but the hours spent on it was because I knew that this book could change lives. And it's, and it goes back to the same thing as College Prospects of America. It's what I do matters and what I'm going to do with this matters. So I, I took a very large chunk of my life to create something that I believe is quite special that I believe will impact the lives of salespeople, non-salespeople, or just people in general. And that was the goal of the book. It wasn't create just a sales book. Yeah, it's a phenomenal sales book. If you're a top closer, it's going to make you amazing. But there's a lot of people out there that say, oh, well, I'm not in sales. I'm not a salesperson. I'm not a salesman. I'm an engineer. I'm this. And it's just like, no, 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 no. If you get a little bit better at selling or getting people to say yes, you're going to be that much more successful in your career in general. So that's kind of what the premise of, of, of why I put that together. I don't really even know if I answered the question. <laughs> well, I'll say it back to you, but you did. Essentially, you felt convicted in your heart that you wanted to do this because you've been the top producer in the organization that you started out with at the ground level, and then you eventually acquired it. And you've seen the opportunity that yourself and your family has received by knowing how to sell and you wanted to help others and create opportunity for as many people as you can and you can't copy yourself. So what you can do is take your experiences, your principles and the things that work and you can try to distribute that and connect with as many people you can. And then it's another form of the tide lifting all boats and you're creating more opportunity for others, for people that you can serve. Is that a fair that's that's a fair game, and I'll tell you, like the why in my heart was okay. I've I've these these skills and these abilities that that are that are God given. Some of them are God given. Some of them are trained. Some of them are learned over time. But it's the world at the end of the day is what you have. And so over my career, I've helped student athletes, for example, or families in a very in a very small segment of the world impacted those lives. And one day I said, okay, how can I impact hundreds, thousands, or millions of lives? How can I do that? And the only way I can, I can think of it is through a book. You know? And so that's why, that's why I decided to write the book. Obviously, the book can lead to speaking and a lot of different things that I already do. But I wanted to put something in, I wanted to write something, and, and maybe, I'm, maybe it will, maybe it won't, but I wanted to write something that can sit in a shelf for 50 years and, 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 and still have value. Because I always say, you know, the way that you do business changes, but people, human nature in theory really doesn't change. So there's books out there that, that are still valid today as they were valid 50 years from now. I set out to write something that I believe can impact a life today and 50 years from now. And I think that's why the reason that most people are buying the actual copy of the book and not like the Kindle and writing it up and, and, and it, because it really is something that you can apply, read over. And, and I have books like that in my, in, in my bookshelf that it's like, these are books that literally can, can impact change life. So that's what I was set to do. And, and that kind of goes into what you were saying. It, it wasn't just, hey, let's write a book. It's let's write a book that can impact lives. I've seen time and time again where people come up and they say, hey, you know, I love, I love what you're doing. Or can I meet with you? I want to talk to you about what you're doing. I want to do something similar. Or I want to start this. Or I want to start that or whatever. And statistically, the odds of people that actually follow through are very small. I'm curious. This is, no, this is not rocket science. It's common data and understanding just the amount of people that are willing to actually do what they say they're going to do, uh, it's, it's very small. What are the consequences that someone experiences in their life if they don't know how to sell? They get told no all the time and they just take it. When you say, what if you don't know how to sell? I, I, I completely change it. And that's, 
what if you don't know how to connect with people, get to their heart and get them to allow you to take an action? Or what if you can't connect with people, connect with their heart and allow and get them and allow them to say yes to you? See, that's the beauty of, and I believe what, what I've written it, that it's not, when we think about sales or selling, we think about powering through, through words or through actions or through speaking or through vocabulary of getting someone to do something or manipulating them into something. And that's not what I've written. This is a book about how does Sam or anyone else who has a target, a market out there or a person out there they'd like to influence, how do you approach, introduce, connect with that individual, discover what is important to them in their life or their business or their family or whatever it is that's important in their life? And how do you apply to what you're doing into their life and how that is going to impact their life and why they need to do that today to see that impact. So I don't consider that selling. It is selling, but it really is what I call connecting with the heart. If you win the heart, you win the sale. If you win the heart, you win the business. If you win the heart, you get people to say yes. And so people that don't understand how to do that, what they do is sell. They think that, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk a thousand miles an hour about why we should, and the other person is just not even listening because it's not applying to me. If, if what you're telling me doesn't impact me, doesn't apply to me, it doesn't benefit my life, guess what? Most people don't care. And, and it's a sad reality. But people like talking about themselves and people are selfish and, and want to know what's in it for them. So what happens is people that don't know how to connect sell or they see no as a barrier to everything in life. So if I get a no, so to me, a no is just an opportunity to get a yes. It's okay, I've gotten the no. I have to get another, in order for me to get a yes, I have to get a no. Because the fact that this person's telling me no tells me that at least they care. So how do I get to yes? And people that don't know how to connect or as you said, sell, Go through life simply accepting the no's in life. And life is full of no's. And it's those people that understand these concepts, and some people are great at it, that I've written about are saying, okay, it's not about me talking. It's about me connecting and impacting lives. And it's me about being able to overcome walls through how do I get to yes. And that's what the book is about. But like, for example, in your world, Sam, you, ha- you have a great podcast. You have an amazing podcast. You're a great interviewer. And so like if I was wanting to um, get on one of your one on one of your shows, you know, I'd have to understand how or the why of that podcast is going to impact my life, my business, my family. It's it's not the podcast. It's what impact is it going to have in my life? Then I have to understand that the pod that but I can impact my life through many ways. I have to understand why a podcast is going to make that happen. And then after that, I have to understand why or how Sam Coates can make that happen through this podcast. And then after that, I have to understand the why today. So in the book, I talk about those why todays. I mean, the, the four, why I call them the four whys. And it's, and it's, once you understand that concept, it's phenomenal of what you can achieve. But the point that I'm trying to say is everything that I just said is emotional. It's the whys to everything of 
of why it's going to get me or anyone else to do something. You can tell me how great your podcast is going to be, but if I don't see how it's going to apply to me or to my family or anything else or why I have to do it, I'm just not going to do anything. And so every, you can do anything in life with that concept, whether it's selling insurance or again, or anything. What have you learned as an entrepreneur to be able to create a lot of opportunity, be able to grow in an impressive way, the amount of people connected with and served, but also maintaining and making sure that what's being presented is true and is right and is best for that person. You can't offer or sell or or be someone that you don't believe that can impact, whether it's a product or service yourself that impact a life. I I believe in what I sell, whatever, regardless of what I sell. Like, I believe it's the best book in the world. I believe I have the best college recruiting industry in the world. I believe that I can be your best friend. Like, I believe those things. I have to believe them. And I have a friend that says, sometimes it's more about believing than the, than the truth. If you believe it enough, it comes to be, you know? Uh, you, he was actually on your show <laughs> not too long ago. Sometimes you have to just believe it, whether it's true or not. And, and that's what I think, you know, to answer the question, both in business and life, it's, you know, sometimes like, don't come up to me asking me for advice if you don't want to hear the brutal truth. Because if you come up to me for advice, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig deep in your heart. And I'm going to ask those questions that are uncomfortable, but I believe, and I, I say in the book, is those things that you're afraid to ask and is those things that you're afraid to say that are going to impact the most lives. So most of us live through lives, you know, with a wall and we're not willing to go past that wall because we don't want to put ourselves in uncomfortable positions or situations, but mostly because we may not have anything to offer that other person. I believe that I have something to offer that person, whether it's you know, it, whether it's on a spiritual, religious standpoint, whether it's just a, where it's, whether it may be prayer or whether it may be a, a book or whether it may be a solution or it may be a, a, just a friend or I have to believe that I have something to offer that person speaking in the, in the business, in the life world. So I'm going to dig deep and I'm going to find out what you need. And I, I, I will try to find, to, to help you somehow, which is why you know, my wife always says, I can't leave you alone for five minutes in an airport because someone's crying at your shoulder or telling you they're going to kill themselves or, you know, giving you their phone number to say, hey, I mean, because I dig deep. Now, sometimes that's exhausting and I'll just put on my headphones and I don't want to talk to a human being because it's, it's very hard to, to be all in all the time. And so if you get me on an airplane soon and I just got my headset on it's because I literally I'm, I I exhaust myself sometimes with that desire to dig deep but on the but in the entrepreneurial business standpoint it's it's really the same thing because as you're as you're selling whatever you're selling or offering whatever you're offering whether it's just whether it's you dealing with your employees and digging deep into their lives and and believing I've got the best job that I can offer these people. I love they they they're so lucky to work here because we offer this and this and this and this and whatever they're going through. I know we can I know we can make it better. And then if you're dealing with the client, it's the same thing. It's like uh, we have the best service out there, and I know that not everyone's going to be happy. There's going to be complaints, but I know we can help them if we just uncover what it is that they're what their need is. And on a sales standpoint, for the sales team, it's, all right, I know that I've got a product and I've got the best product out there, but I can't sell this person that product if I don't understand discover what's important to them. 
and so that's that's really what I teach you to do in the book is how to the, the principles of how to connect, discover those things, discover, read the heart. I call it read the heart, so that you can offer what you, what you can offer to that person, but you're never going to be able to offer what's going to impact the life if A, you don't understand what they need through discovery, or B, you don't actually believe that you can help them. And I think there, what, the difference is there, Sam, is that mo- a lot of people don't believe in themselves or don't believe in their company or don't believe in their product. They really just you know have a job to make money and that's where they are. So I don't take on anything in my life that I don't believe in. So you're not you're not saying you're delusional about whatever it is. You just you're selective. I'm selective. Yeah, I'm selective. And that standard pushes you to always build what's best for the relationships that you're serving. So it keeps you centered, I guess. Yeah. I'll give you a perfect example. I had I had one of our top. I had a, a woman that worked for us for years and years and years and years and years. That that I challenged her to do something this year that she hasn't been doing because of fear. And, and then she left us. <laughs> she left the company. Why? Because at the end of the day, deep down inside, she knew she wasn't in the right place. And she, was, she, was, she kept there because, I mean, for her, for her own life. So what, what I'm saying, what I'm saying the same thing you're saying is you need to put yourself in the position in life where you fully believe you are in the right place at the right time and that you are in the right, like, this is where you need to be. You're not, you're not supposed to be where you think or where you are where you need to be. And so you believe that where you are is the absolute best of you. And so what you're selling or what you're offering can actually impact someone else's life. And I just don't think we live in that world. And maybe I am delusional, but I know a lot of people that aren't in the place where they believe that what they're doing matters or is important or that they're you know, able to impact lives, which is why they don't. For somebody that may be interested in, in writing a book, what have you learned or what have you thought or what have you planned about distribution and how good or how bad is that? Well, distribution goes down to, back to product. You can't distribute a product that isn't sellable. And so what I would tell you, I mean, first thing I would tell you is if you're thinking of writing a book, you have to realize that there's a difference between a book like an actual sellable book that you can actually put out into the world and impact lives and something that you just want to create so that you can give it to a client. And they say, oh, he wrote a book, but it really isn't something that's marketable and sellable. There's, there's two very different things. And there's a lot of books out there that are more of like business cards. You know, oh, this guy wrote a book, but no one's going to read the book. And so you have to start with why why I'm trying to write this book. If it's just like a little business card, heck, there's websites out there that you can put together a book in 30 days and just put something in there and it'll they'll make a nice cover and you can give it to your clients and you know they'll say you wrote a book, they'll never read it, but hey, you wrote a book. That's one book, right? What I've put together is an actual book book that 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 you know it's selling in Mexico, it's selling in the UK, I you know it's selling every day in the US. Not just to my friends, like people I actually don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But but the key there is is that you have to create an amazing product. Like the product has to be, and that costs money. That costs time, it costs money, it costs resources to, you know, an actual to an actual product that people are gonna read and say, Well, this is professionally written. This cover is, you know, you see it on Amazon, all you see is a little cover. 
And it takes for one second to a person to say, wow, I'm going to click on that to buy it. But if it's not a professional cover, something you spent money on is just not going to happen. So first all I say is a book is a product. And, and how much time and money you invest in that product is how much you can actually distribute and sell it and people are going to want to buy it. Because at the end of the day, it's just a little cover on Amazon that somebody's going to have to make the decision whether they want to click on it or not. And so once you have an actual product, an actual sellable product, uh, and now that, that requires an editor. I mean, it's not just, hey, I wrote the book. There's a, I mean, the editing process to me was something I never, I did a lot of research prior to, prior to doing this and what it would take to write this book. I knew it would take, you know, three to five years, but the editing process in itself took about two years. The, my original manuscript to my finished manuscript, it, it's just night and day. And it's just what a professional editor can do to an idea is fascinating. So you have this product and now you got to bring it out to the world. And on my standpoint, I'm not afraid of that. Like I never actually sought out a publisher. Uh, People say, oh, you're going to get it. I never sought out a publisher. I did the research on what that means. And, you know, I may be wrong, but at the end of the day, I never sought out a publisher. I believe that I've done enough research and have the know-how, the marketing know-how and ability to get that book out there. And it's doing wonderful right now. But, it, but because I took the time to create a, a really nice product. And so, yeah, spending money on, you know, Amazon, you know, ads and, you know, in other areas, getting the book out there and, 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 and it's selling because it looks like a good product. Now, is it a good product? You read the book. Uh, I don't know. You maybe, <laughs> you know, maybe you hated it, but I think you loved it. And most of, the, most of my readers are saying they love the book. So it isn't just the physical product. I think it's also the content that's in there. But as far as distribution, I would say that this that writing a book is a journey. It is a lot of work. It takes a lot of research. And at the end of the day, like you have to look at it this way. I think this sums it up. You can be selling, you know, this tin can, but this tin can has to sell. It's a product. A book is just a book is a business in itself, and you got to figure out. How am I going to get this to sell? And what are those ancillary products around it? Whether it's speaking, training, like right now I'm doing two-day workshops for some big companies. And, and that is a part of the business of the book. So it's the whole world around this little book. So don't take it lightly. If you're thinking of writing a book and you really want to turn it into something, you, you don't take it lightly. It's a business. You know, it's, uh, trademarks and copyrights. All I can say is just, you know, if you want to write a book and you just wanted to make it a presentation card, ignore everything I said. It's easy to do. But that's why they, when, you know, when you go on Amazon and you type in top sales books, there really is maybe 30, 40 that come up that really are constantly seen because those are real books. And behind those, you know, there's eight, something like 7 billion books on Amazon. But I would say 90 some percent of those are just people's manuscripts. A few sentences prior, you were talking about your principles. You know how to get something to market. What is that for you with this book, as much as you're willing to share? So I may be unrealistic. <laughs> so my my thing getting the market is again. I believe that I can hit. I mean, I mean, be completely wrong. It might be impossible, but I think I can hit. You know, number one bestseller on some categories on Amazon. I believe that. I fully believe that. And actually, the book hit number five on sales and sales marketing presentations or something like that. It hit number one new release. So when I see it, I say, well, I, it can be achieved. 
So for me, the book consistently being, you know, in that top hundred, in that top twenty, in that top ten, to me, that's a win. That that's that's a win. And then that and then enough readers reading the book where someone will reach out to us and say, Hey, I want you to come impact our company. I want you to come impact our people. I want you to come impact, you know, our thousand salespeople. Let's do a two-day workshop or can you speak? That to me will get me in the door to impact hundreds, if not thousands of lives. And then I want to translate the, 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 the book into Spanish and get it out there into the Spanish world because uh, one of the superpowers that I, and I believe it is a superpower, there's a lot of a great authors out there that are in sales books. But here's the problem. They're not 100% fully bilingual like me. I can, I can go impact lives in Mexico City and Bogota, Colombia and Buenos Aires, Argentina and speak to tons of people there. So when I think of the book, yes, there's the sell of the book. There's the ancillary products of the book. But really, Sam, the big why is Oscar Subarats can use these skills and literally through way through speaking through the book that can impact, really impact lives all over the world. That is the biggest why of, of, I mean, that's to me is the wind. That's to me is the wind. So if you're out there and you have access to 10 million people that we, <laughs> I mean, that's the win. That's the win. You know, getting, getting that impact, getting those tools just to the world. That's what I want to do. Why haven't you done it in Spanish yet? Is it just a cost? It's just a, yeah, it's just a journey. So we put out the book. The book came out in January. Uh, translating a book in Spanish isn't just putting it in Word and, and, and doing a translation. It's an actual translating the book in, in the language and in the culture that, that that market's going to grasp. So there's multiple variations. There's multiple variations. So, you know, the, it, it, and so I think there's also the part of me that says, hey, I've lived in Latin America for 10 years. There's additions to that book that have not been written for the Latin American market. And so that's why, that's why I haven't done it. When you said you want it to be an Amazon bestseller for sales and marketing, is that right? Did I hear that correctly? <laughs> yeah. To back into that, can you share briefly where do you start and what does that look like to actually execute that? Well, I think it starts with putting out a great product, which I think I, I have. And then, you know, getting as many avenues to have access to people to listen, you know, like this is a great opportunity. I, I'm, I'm grateful that I'm on this podcast. Uh, there's people that are going to buy the book because buy the book now <laughs> that, are, that are because we're on this podcast and it's a journey of getting it out there in as many hands as possible so that those people, you know, I, I've, you know, one of my favorite books in the whole wide world is Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers. I've told about him so many people to read that book. It's like, man, have you read that book? That's what I want. I want people who are sitting around the table saying, man, have you read Closing Intelligence? Or like the, uh, or a, a whole, a whole sales team, you know, hey man, did you get that sale? Yeah, I used Closing Intelligence. I can't even believe I made that sale. It was amazing. And so it's a journey of, of that. And yeah, and that costs money too, because, you know, if you advertise with enough dollars on Amazon, you will rise in the rankings, but, but that will only take you so far because that in itself is not scalable to a level where it's going to get into, you know, hundreds and thousands of millions of hands. But do I think I can do it? Yeah. I mean, I said I was going to write a book. Everybody said, yeah, whatever. Five years later, I had the book. I said it was going to be a number one year release and it was. I said it was going to hit the top 10 and it did. So. I think if you put your mind to something, you know, 
you can try to achieve it and maybe you will, but you know what? I'm not going to sleep at night if I don't. I'm not going to, I have a friend who once told me that they were depressed because they never made it into the, their lifelong CFO role that they dreamed their whole life. And I said, well, but you live a great life. And it's the same thing here. I mean, sometimes I think when you're humble and you're just grateful for where you are and, and not to get religious on you, but you know, God gives you more. So that's, that's that. So what you're saying is when you're content and grateful, you keep taking your shot. Yep. Things happen. Absolutely. From a sales standpoint, when you think about where we're at today, time and space, and you think about the continued push and advancement of technology and automation in every sector across the board and how fast things are moving, can you share what you think about the importance of being able to communicate, understand, and being able to deliver on selling the service or product that you care about and you know that will benefit other people? Well, I think there's a lot of things that technology is going to replace, particularly in customer service realms and, you know, realms of things that can be automated. I mean, just you can do, you can, you know, you can buy insurance online just by going to, you know, an insurance (laughs) company and Back then, someone had to come to your house to sell you the insurance. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of things that back in the day you had to buy through a salesperson or that you had to you know, have an account manager to service to get service. And I think as AI and technology and as we move forward, less role, there's going to be less people doing that because everything's going to be automated. But here's the key. That just means there's going to be less less opportunities for high level skilled salespeople because in some roles you you know human nature doesn't change when it's a high ticket item you know when it's something that just needs that face to face you know in big business it just needs that face to face communication and and get and get the yes and there's going to be less of those roles and so what i'm trying to say is selling is going to, you know, selling has a bad gig, has a bad vibe, has a bad, people say, oh, he's just a salesman. Oh, he's a car salesman. I got to tell you, some of the most successful people in the world are awesome at sales, you know, at every level of the company because that's how they grow. And so my thought is, there's going to be less sales jobs out there. There's going to be less CS customer service jobs out there. There's going to be less marketing jobs out there. There's going to be less everything because the world's going to automate everything, which is why you got to be dang good at selling. Selling yourself, selling your business, selling your product, selling your company, selling everything. And if you don't know how to sell, get in the back of the line. Because the person in the front of the line is saying, I'm not standing in the back of the line. How do I get to the front of the line? And that's how I live my life. And they're going to figure it out. They're going to figure it out. And you know what? That figuring out sometimes involves communicating, touching, reaching another person by selling something so that other person says, yeah, come to the front of the line, man. Don't, don't stand back there. Yeah. This is a question from a different angle, but we'll see if you're open to give me your thoughts on it. A couple of weeks ago, I was with somebody and, the, and they were talking about just from their standpoint, the future of the world. And this person is, they built very strong company globally 
And I've and I also got to read kind of their projections 20, 30 years ago and and they're spot on. And I asked this person, I said, you know, how do you see the future of the United States? And they said the US it would be in its best interest to actually strengthen its relationship with Mexico and Canada and have more of a harmonious relationship from a trade and productivity standpoint. I'm not asking this about Canada, but from your standpoint, having a home in both of those countries, being born in Mexico, but moving to the United States, how would you describe it? What are the issues between the relationship between the United States and Mexico and what could happen that would actually be productive and positive? Oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, oh, man. This is, that's just, that's, I don't even know where to start on that one. Um, <laughs> Having lived, you know, an extensive amount of time in Mexico and the U.S. and both, I can tell you that Mexico is no longer this country of poor people who are trying to come. I mean, it is. There's a lot of poor people still trying to come to the United States. I get that. But there's a very, very large percentage of down south people south of the border that are very wealthy, middle class, lower class going to the middle class. And those people are, I mean, buying a heck of a lot of U.S. products, and we're buying a heck of a lot of Mexican products. Just look at some basic things like the beer that you drink. I mean, it's, it's becoming Mexican, <laughs> you know? The stuff that you eat, it's coming from Mexico, a lot of it. You know, Americans are, you know, there's, Americans are going in planefuls from every major airport in America three, four flights a day, completely full of people going to Cancun, Mexico, and moving to Cancun and Playa del Carmen and all those places. I think that I think in, in Amazon, for example, has been able to do, in my opinion, the unthinkable that five years ago you wouldn't like they're actually delivering products to Mexicans in their home like they are doing in the United States. Like you can now buy something on Amazon that was made in Wisconsin and have it delivered to your home in Mexico City or anywhere. I mean, that's unthinkable. That would have been unthinkable five years ago. So as you, as you, as I said, tell you those things, you say, man, whether we like it or not, we are going to be sharing products and services and vacation spots and people and universities and technology more and more as time goes by. And, and so this idea that and I don't want to get political, and, but this idea that we can do it by ourselves, I just think that sometimes when somebody says that, I say, you know, go to the airport, get on an airplane, fly south, and then come tell me what you think. And I, and, and, and I think it's the people that have been there that say, man, like, I get it. I get it. I mean, there's a Starbucks in every corner in Mexico now. There's a Starbucks in every corner. And not only that, there's companies that, you're going and doing banking with nowadays that you don't even know that those are Mexican companies. There's a lot of intermingling going on, and I just don't think it's going to stop. Is the reason why they're still in such a growing presence of international students, the way we talked about earlier, is that just because of the educational system and the universities? They haven't caught up yet the way that the middle class or the economic opportunity has the way you referenced? I, well, I think the opportunity is there because the United States has that image where, you know, it's still the greatest, most powerful country in the world. And if you come here, 
you're going to get this beautiful U.S. degree and you're going to get access to jobs and opportunities that you're never going to have unless you have that degree in being here. And so it's still the American dream. You know, America has the American dream and that's why people want to come here. And so I think that's why people come. And, you know, it's very different to make pesos than make dollars. And if you can come to this country and make dollars, you know, you, you, it's just a different ballgame. And so that's why people are coming here. But, but to clarify, Mexico has actually done kind of the opposite. Like when I first started CPOA, there was no really college sports in Mexico. So there's actually a lot of kids now that actually stay in Mexico because Mexico has created its own NCAA in college sports industry. And Mexico has some, some great universities. There's, I mean, there's people in the U.S. that actually go down to Mexico to study because there's some great universities down there, which are now offering college sports. So I think it isn't because anymore, because so, you can now say, hey, I want to play tennis. I want to play golf. I don't want to come to the, go to the United States. Let me stay in Mexico. I think people still come here because of that American dream opportunity that if I get that degree from anywhere, it doesn't have to be Berkeley. It can be Louisiana Lafayette or any other co- college in America. The world is going to see it as, wow, you studied in the U.S. You know, you're different. And, and, and doors just open up. And you're saying that there's a, there's a lot of people and people are, for the most part, grateful, scrappy, yeah, and humble. So they'll take advantage of the opportunities. Right. And also, but as the, as the economy, as the Mexican, as there's more middle class, more higher class, more wealth in Mexico and in Colombia and everywhere else, the numbers of people that it can afford some sort of U.S. education is greater than it, than it ever has been. Even though the cost of U.S. education rises, but there's also a market that also is no longer a market living in, you know, it's, it's a market that's, you know, they're entrepreneurs and business, and they want to send their kids to the United States to study. So it doesn't have to be through sports. You know, I mentioned earlier, there's a million international students in the United States. I didn't say they were athletes. Right. It's just, it's just mom and dad who are sending their kid to school in America. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Driven By Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review. Please subscribe to the show and you can follow me on social, on Twitter and Instagram to join me for future episodes of the Driven By Podcast. Hope you have a great week and see you next time.